Our Father, we would love to believe that that heaven indeed senses and hears our praises, that, that what we do here is that which is observed in heaven, and yet, O oh God, it is that which we do here which is practiced for heaven. We will spend our eternity giving praise to the thrice holy God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are a people who are learning to do now what will engage us forever, worship. And I pray, Father, that your people might discover that they are not here to assess, they are not here to spectate, they are not here to pass opinions, they are here to perform. They are here to perform before the grand audience of one. All of us, all of us are here to give that which you so rightly deserve. Praises, thanksgiving, confession of sin, consecration. We are here to make vows. We are here, O oh God, to do business with you. And I pray, Father, that before we leave here, some business will have been done in each heart. That we will not walk out of here the same people having, having primped and fussed and fixed up to come spend an hour in religious stuff. Might we find our hearts engaged as we spend an hour talking to you and hearing from you. Our Father, we are a people who come with a mixed bag of requests. Some of us have marriages that we wonder if they're going to make it till tomorrow. And I pray, Father, that you will speak a word of hope or encouragement in this hour to, to husbands whose eyes have begun to wander to wives whose hearts have begun to fix upon other things or other persons. Oh God, prevent that from happening ever again among us. Lord, there are others of us who wonder whether when we head back to work tomorrow that the news out of New York will spell disaster financially for us. There is a nation that is very edgy because, oh God, we have made a God out of our money and our possessions. We have looked to it to meet our needs. We have thought that if our portfolio was just fat enough, that, you, that we would be safe. Father, the best thing that could happen to people, some people in this room, is that you empty those portfolios completely so that they would find our only safety is in Christ Jesus. So, Father, address our fears and lead us in a path of righteousness no matter what happens. Might our response be people, be like a people who know that our financial future is safer in your hands than it is in ours. Still others, oh God, wonder about their health women who wrestle with concerns, men who wonder. And I pray, Father, that our worship today would allow us to get our minds off of that problem and fix them on eternity so that we can walk out of here as people who have at least for an hour remembered that this three score and ten is not all there is. There's an eternity, and we're preparing for it. 
I guess, oh God, the first, I know, oh God, the first act of preparation is a saving closure with Jesus Christ. Produce that today. Save now, Lord Jesus. And in response to your saving work in our lives, we give. And boy, it is our privilege and pleasure to do so. Take these small checks and use them such that other people might hear that without Christ, they will spend an eternity separated from God. We commit ourselves to that, Father, and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Beginning at verse 16 of Mark chapter 15, follow as I read. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing on the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour, sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God 
oh, my brother and sister in Christ. It endures forever. We um, normally think of the ministry of Jesus Christ as lasting three years. But the Bible never mentions that figure. Did you know that? The Bible never mentions that Jesus had a three-year ministry. What the Bible does mention is three separate Passovers that Jesus attended. And because the Passover was an annual feast, we thus conclude that the ministry of Jesus Christ took place covering at least portions of three separate calendar years. Now, during that ministry, ladies and gentlemen, you'll find it throughout the New Testament, Jesus' ministry is described with three words. That is, he went about doing three things. It's interesting, the three things that he went about doing, ladies and gentlemen, and, and you might need to take note of this, that the three things that Jesus did so frequently is preach, teach, and heal. Those were the three things that we see him most doing. And since his healing ministry was somewhat um, um, rare, he didn't do that much, although he did uh, plenty. The, the, the bulk of the ministry of Jesus Christ was performed via teaching and preaching. And, of course, that ministry was sealed, accomplished, completed by his death and resurrection. During uh, those three years of his preaching and teaching, Jesus turned several places into pulpits <clears throat> that wouldn't have been particularly known as a pulpit. For instance, he, uh, his first pulpit was a mountaintop where he preached that glorious three-chapter sermon called the Sermon on the Mount that has benefited us so greatly. He uh, then later turned a synagogue into a pulpit. He preached there from Isaiah, you'll recall, as recorded for us in Luke 4. He uh, preached in a boat. Peter's small boat was pushed out a few yards off the shore of the Sea of Galilee so that Jesus could be heard better. He turned a boat into a pulpit. And then a small homes that he visited. Then even the temple became a pulpit for Jesus Christ. And then he preached finally from an upper room. Finally, I said, I don't really mean that because really the last pulpit that Jesus mounted was a cross. And from there he preached his final sermon. It had seven parts to it, ladies and gentlemen. We call it the seven last words of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you'll read your newspaper yesterday, <coughs> from yesterday, there are churches all over the city that are having this week a sermon series entitled The Seven Last Sayings, The Seven Last Words of Christ. It begins with, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It concludes with, Father, into thy hands I commit thy, my spirit. Seven sayings from Christ. No, none of the Gospels include them all. That is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. None, none of them include all seven. You have to gather them up. Uh, but by far, or without a question, my favorite is one that is not found in Mark. It's found in John. My favorite part of Jesus' last sermon is the sixth of seven. The sixth thing that he said from this pulpit of a cross, it was when he said, it is finished. To telestai. That was the Greek word. Greeks prided themselves on being able to say a lot with a little. 
Well, here's a classic illustration, ladies and gentlemen. That sentence, that English sentence, it is finished, is comprised of one, one Greek word, tetelestai. It is a, a variation of the, of the verb teleo, which means to close or to end. It is found in the um, perfect, it is found as a perfect participle, which means something which we'll hopefully mention. But gang, um, in that one word, tetelestai, that Jesus spoke from the cross, in that one word is compressed all of the beauties, all of the excellencies of the gospel. And gang, it is imperative that we understand what is meant. If you are seated here this morning and you do not know the full import of tetelestai, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, it's very unlikely that you're a Christian. You must, you must know what that means. Let me tell you a little story about the word. It's been told before. I've told it before. In fact, you've probably heard it before. But it does uh, enrich, I think, our experience with the word. Um, 1947 or 1951, somewhere back in there, a uh, small Arab boy was playing around the Dead Sea. He threw a rock into a cave and he heard something break. And uh, went inside that cave to, um, to find out what it was that had been broken and made perhaps the most significant archaeological discovery of the 20th century. You, of course, have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were first found by a little Arab boy who threw a rock into a cave. He went in there and found massive amounts of literature, of, of documents. They found huge portions of the Old Testament, several copies of the book of Isaiah, and, and on and on in terms of copies of the, the most ancient copies that we had and have now of the Old Testament. Also in there, however, were hundreds and hundreds of what was called bills of lading. Now, I don't know that you know what a bill of lading is. Uh, the word that communicates best to me is a receipt. It was a receipt. And written on the bottom of these receipts for a commercial transaction, that is a receipt for a commercial transaction, well, written on the bottom of, of those receipts was the word tetelestai. The same Greek word in the same person, the same number, the same tense, the same mood <clears throat> as the word that Jesus spoke from the cross. The same word that Jesus said tetelestai in the same person, number, tense, and voice was found on hundreds of receipts in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now store that away just for a minute. Because I need to begin by telling you what it is finished doesn't mean. Ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus said it is finished, it is not some despairing cry of a helpless martyr, some kind of statement of thanksgiving that he was oh so glad that his sufferings were now over. It's finished! <laughs> this is not some kind of sigh of relief that... Phew, my pain is now over. It is finished. No, ladies and gentlemen, it means none of that. What then does he mean? What indeed was finished? To answer that question, go back with me to those bills of lading, those receipts that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
what did tetelestai mean on the bottom of receipts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, it meant paid in full. No more is due. Nothing need be added. Nothing, need, nothing more need be done. This commercial transaction is finished, completed. No more is owed. Now, the reason I said that, ladies and gentlemen, I think you can see, the thing that it meant on the bottom of a receipt found in the Dead Sea Caves is the same thing that Jesus meant when he hung from a cross. When he said, Tetelestai, what was meant is paid in full. No more is due. Nothing need be added. Nothing more need be done. The work that the Heavenly Father gave me to do, I've done it from front to back. Everything is perfected. Everything is completed. Nothing more need be done about it. The grand work of atonement is accomplished. My role as the sin-bearing servant and substitute for my people has been fully accomplished. It is finished. Tetelestai. The work that Jesus did is done, it is completed, nothing more need be added, and nothing more should be added, ladies and gentlemen. Because his work is one of utter and complete perfection. And because it is so perfect, to add anything to it is to mar it. It is to harm it. It is to empty it of its incomparable value. To say that Jesus Christ has done a good thing, but I then must be baptized, is to mar that completed and perfected work. It is finished. To tell us die. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the crux of the message from Jesus as he preaches from a pulpit of a cross. When he says, it is finished. He is pointing to the accomplishment that he himself has made in the interests of his people. And, and though, I, ladies and gentlemen, though its beauty, it, it, part of its beauty is its utter simplicity. We're only talking about one word here, ladies and gentlemen, one word. We're talking about one word. That ought to be pretty simple for us to understand. I say to you, I'm not sure people yet understand it. I'm not sure that even Christians understand it. What I want to do, ladies and gentlemen, as I close, is I want to mention four types of people who need to go back and listen all over again to this marvelously simple gospel message to tell us die. There are four brands of people that I hope will listen to me because I'm, I'm afraid you do not yet understand to tell us die. 
The, the first type that I'd like to mention are those people who I guess you would have to say have some kind of spiritual inferiority complex. They, they always are feeling inadequate, are incapacitated by one thing or the other, never good enough, constantly comparing themselves against others and coming up short. You're, you're kind of a spiritual wannabe. And because you are, you, you can't or at least don't accept criticism very well. There is um, perhaps assurance has always been a problem for you. You live in a constant state of insecurity. Others always do things better than you do. You are consumed with your long list of shortcomings. Perhaps all of this Perhaps all of this insecurity, perhaps all of this, this inferiority complex was brought on by some kind of moral failure in the past, some kind of spiritual failure of the past. And because you did fail so badly, you then begin to set yourself on some kind of course to make up for that. You're trying to complete the work of Christ, a, a completed work of Christ you know nothing about because you have yourself on some kind of course of finishing up what Jesus did. And I say to you, my brother and sister in Christ, you need to hear all over again. It is finished. Your work is incomplete, but his isn't. And his is the only one that matters. Your, your consumption with, with your shortcomings and your failures and your inadequacies and your sins and, and they are awful. They are inadequacies. They are shortcomings. They are failures. All of that, ladies and gentlemen, all of that was in view when Jesus Christ hung from a cross and said, it is finished. All of my imperfections swallowed up in his grand and glorious perfection. Ladies and gentlemen, God doesn't love simply 95% of you and the other 5% that is so awful he ignores. No, ladies and gentlemen. His love extends to all of you. All 100% of you. And he can do that because the work of Jesus is finished. We need add nothing to it. And to add something to it is to harm it. There's another brand of professing Christian out there that would be the opposite of that one. No, you, you don't have a, um, an inferiority complex. You have a, superior, a superiority complex. Bruce Larson said once that some of us go through life listening to voices from the cellar. Oh, you're not good enough. But others of us go through life listening from voices from the balcony. Because we are a people who, who think of ourselves as morally superior. You're, you're, you're pretty critical. You find yourself often in the position of evaluating other folks. You're good at it. That is, you're good at evaluating. You're, you're quick to judge. You have a real judgmental spirit in you. You would have to be labeled some kind of legalist. Others people's business 
is your business. And you're not very comfortable around people who aren't living right because you assume that you would never do that. Um, if, if people want to live right, then they, they just need to live like I'm living because I'm living right, and if you live more like me, you'd live right too. Look, look at me. I, I'm, I'm somebody that you ought to be more like. You know, you need, need to get over it and move on. And the attitude is that I'm, when I measure myself against somebody else, I, I, I do pretty good. There's a hard streak in you. And because there's a hard streak in you, you, you are, um, you hold grudges. You find submission to authority very difficult. Submission? Why, why, would I, why would I submit to them? Who needs them? Because I'm, I'm pretty much self-sufficient in and of myself. You have very little need or see very little need of a reliance upon Jesus Christ because you're at the helm of this thing. And I say to you, my brother, my sister, you need to hear it is finished, but not by you. You need, you need to hear that the work of Christ Jesus for us was a perfect work, and you don't need to be doing God's work for him. All of that which you think makes you morally superior doesn't. And very honestly, none of it's needed because the work of Jesus Christ is finished. And then there's another brand of professing believer. They're, um, I don't know what else to call them, but perfectionists. They're addicted to some kind of driven standard. They're obsessive. They look at the world and they say, oh, the world's a mess and, and uh, God needs my help to go fix it. And so you try to fix the world and, and find out that's pretty tough and so your solution is to just try harder. You're, you're always seeking to, to tidy up things just a little bit because they need, they need your touch. You, you, you know how things should be, but, there aren't, but they are not like that and so you tirelessly seek to get them to be that way. You're trying to complete yourself and everybody around you. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, you need to hear. It is finished. The work is done. Ladies and gentlemen, nothing we can do can make God love us less. But what really drives us crazy is that nothing we can do can make him love us more because it's finished. Jesus Christ does not do a half of a work and then leave it up to us to complete it somehow. Gang, all three types of people are trying in their own unique way to finish the work of Christ. You're trying to add to it in some way. The inferior Christian is trying to add to it because you think you must. The superior Christian is trying to add to it because you think you can. 
the addicted Christian is trying to add to it because you feel like your frenzy somehow allows you to make some kind of contribution to things. And all of you, all of you need to hear, it is finished. To tell us time. There's one other brand of person that I, that I think needs to hear this message too. Not mine, but the one that Jesus preached. It's the non-Christian who has no idea that he has need of anything done for him. You are um, pretty much morally satisfied, morally smug, never, never introspective, never self-evaluative, self-evaluative because you don't think you need to be. Why, why examine something that doesn't have any, isn't broken? Christ's finished saving work is no big deal to you because a Savior is something you already have yourself. I never will forget the night that Jim Kennedy walked into my apartment in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and the, and the, and the most stunning revelation of the night for me was that he was talking about one Savior and I had another one. Me. I and all of my supposed goodness was in competition with the Savior of the, of the world. But you, my non-Christian friend, you like to think of yourselves as very tolerant, especially in this religion stuff. Your whole idea of religion is, you know, you've heard it before, that mountain that exists and God is at the top and all religions are trying to get to God up the different sides of the mountain and they all get there eventually. But ladies and gentlemen, do you see what you've done? According to your definitions of tolerant, you're the most intolerant of us all. Because what you're saying is that you have the vantage point, you have the perspective to sit even on top of the one sitting on top of the mountain. You're the one saying, you have the vantage point that you can look down on everything and, and you can see that all of the religions lead to the top. You of all people have the only vantage point to see that they all get to the same place. You, my friend, are the most intolerant of us all. Because nobody, none of them know anything but you. And you need to hear. It is finished. The work of Jesus Christ need not be added to in any way. I uh, ran across a story in one of the books that I found on um, the seven last words of Jesus. It was by a Dr. Anderson Berry, and I never heard of him before, but he tells a story about Queen Elizabeth. I thought it was fascinating. Not the Queen Elizabeth that's still alive. The Queen Elizabeth that uh, ruled England from about 1545 to 1603. The one that defeated the Spanish Armada and that whole thing. Well, she was indeed the, uh, the leader of the European world, the leader of the idol of society and the leader of European fashion and the and the envy of at least half of the world. And on her deathbed, um, she purportedly said this to a lady in waiting. She turned to one of her 
female couriers and said, Oh my God! It is over! I have come to the end of it. The end, the end! To have only one life and to have done with it? To have lived and loved and triumphed and now to know it is over? One may defy everything else but this. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, it could not be said in any way that she had finished anything. And yet compared to the work and the person of Jesus Christ, the one who said, I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished this work which you have given me to do, he's the one who said, Oh, yes, your work is incomplete. But his isn't. And his is the only one that matters. There is a tradition that states that when Buddha, of course, the founder of Buddhism, when Buddha died, that he had three dying words. Here they are. Strive without ceasing. Ladies and gentlemen, all religion tells you strive without ceasing. It is only Christianity that calls us to rest. To rest in the finished, accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Because, you see, that work is a perfect work. To my audience, I say, be still. Maybe for the first time in your spiritual experience, be still. Father, I pray that your people will prosper greatly by examining again the work that Jesus Christ has done for them, that our joy might be discovered not in some kind of human performance, but that our joy might be discovered in a divine performance, one that did everything that need be done for the accomplishment of redemption and release. Oh, Father, teach us what it means to rest. To rest in Christ. How beautiful it is. Father, if you have led people here who have not yet seen how beautiful is our Savior, might they see it now. Might they be able to see how wonderful is this Savior to whom we commit ourselves again and again. We make our prayer in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. Again, we close with an invitation with you to you to do a couple of things. If you've completed a new members class and your interview's behind you and you feel like that Gracie Van is the place that Jesus has led you, 
we would like for you to come forward. It's a way of introducing, introducing you to the, um, to the family. If it's Christ that you do not yet have, you don't have to come up here to get him. But if you've got questions, we would love to try and answer them. Get a hold of us. As, as everybody's leaving, we'll do our best to answer your questions. One final word. If you're visiting with us, do stop in the visitor's reception. It's in your honor. And we'd love to let you know that you're important to us. And we'd love to give you a little token of that. Why don't you stay with us? Richard Lee.